Today's talk is with painter Simon Callery, who lives in London and works from a studio in Purfleet, Essex. Simon challenges what painting can do today. He makes work that exists on the margins of what can be understood as painting. On his studio wall is written the word invert to remind him every day to subvert the established conventions of image-based paintings to find new roles and develop new forms for painting. He intends that an encounter with one of his works is as much for the body as it is for the eye. He's worked in the landscape alongside field archaeologists on many projects and applies the knowledge he finds here to works made in the urban environment and also to developing studio-based work. The visceral qualities of the excavation sites have made him sensitive to the physical qualities of landscape and the relationship of material to time. I'm with Simon Callery in his studio over in Perfleet. I'm interested in your relationship with colour and um, how your work's changed over the years. Okay. I don't know whether it's something specific to British art, but that colour seems to be a challenge. Um, and I think probably I would agree with that. Uh, yesterday I was writing about the way that I started to try to confront colour as an issue in my painting. So if I think about what I was writing yesterday, it relates to a point when I started to try to work with much stronger, saturated colour, having spent years painting very austere, pale uh, paintings, quite large scale, using uh, primarily lead white. Uh, I spent a long time uh, actually really reducing, restricting the way I use colour because I wanted to focus on other aspects of painting like luminosity or how line operates in painting uh, and these paintings were not you know they were not image-based work a long time ago I started to move away from image-based painting uh, I wanted my works to be more about themselves and about the qualities of painting than about depiction and the whole tradition of depiction. So I really very consciously tried to find ways of moving away from all the conventions around image-based painting. So one of the things, and it's a strategy used by lots of artists, is if you want to look at certain elements of painting and elevate them above others, you reduce colour. Yeah. So uh, that's what I did. And... The more I reduced colour, the more I got involved with using line, not to depict something, but to try to slow down the way that we experience painting. I was trying to find ways that, uh, to get people to spend more time in front of my work. I mean, my generation is basically a y, I'm like part of the YBA generation, but I recognise that most of the kind of strategy of YBA has something to do with the language of advertising or yes. pop it's you know basically out of those sorts of things but with a, obviously a Britishness to it and the opposite of slowing down and the very opposite of slowing down which was the thing I was interested in trying to do I didn't want to work with images I was looking at uh, the world around me the kind of everyday world trying to sort of find my way as a painter by referring to daily experience but not the image of it uh, other things about it uh, and then gradually the paintings were becoming more about the physical qualities and how we understand uh, a painting on a bodily level so mm. not making things that were just visual wanted to try to extend the, the range of the painting, how a painting communicated, to allow uh, a viewer an experience which was not just about looking. It was also about how we could sense a work physically and how we use our, a range of senses. It's about realising that uh, we are fully sentient. In mm. other words, you know, we're eyes, ears, nose, touch, body, all parts of us are capable 
of uh, responding to the world around us, as we call it, the visual arts. I think the problem we have with it is that it's, it's the visual that sets a limit on what can be communicated. The way that we behave, for instance, when we're out in town, we navigate the streets, you know, we go around buildings, we go around people, our whole body is alert, everything's kind of in balance, we know how to move around things. But the minute we enter the, the gallery, we seem to leave a lot of that sort of common sense about how you use your whole body to navigate the world and understand it. We leave three quarters of that common sense at the door. And yes. then we go in and we scrutinise things as if somehow this is the way to understand art. Mm. I think the way we understand art best is in exactly the same way that we understand the world around us. So that is something to do, in my opinion, with considering your viewer as someone fully sentient. In other words, you're not just making something for their visual, their visual world, you're making something for them entirely. Yeah, so it's a kind of phenomenological way of thinking, of being with something. It's also to do with, uh, it's the kind of thinking that I think came out of uh, spending a lot of time in the landscape. When you're out of the city, you kind of let your guard down and you're much more aware of how you respond to what's around you. You can spend time to actually consider it. You're not just always somehow trying to protect yourself and make sure you're okay and you're going from A to B and all this kind of urban stuff. Mm. But you've got time to consider your relationship to what's around you. And uh, the more that I spent time out of town, I mean, I am basically an urban person, but the more I spent time out of town, the more it made me aware that there were these other parts of me that are often suppressed. Yes. So I wanted them to be also uh, something that could be that could relate to art and could relate to painting could relate to sculpture or you know part of that equation yes yeah what made you bring back the colour right so there's a whole period of uh, working in a very reduced way and at the same time I've also begun working with archaeologists which is something I've done for a long time now so I worked on early digs, which were in Chalk, Downlands, oh, yeah. Oxfordshire. Yeah. So all that kind of pale uh, colour of chalk bed rock, something that was really helping me think, was sensitising me to, to colour and to the relationship colour to material. Mm. Uh, so I was still making these white paintings, essentially white paintings, uh, and then beginnings of markings coming into it. And I was using oil pastel, so the oil pastel line would bleed into the white paint. Mm. And then as I worked the whole surface, I was making these, uh, trying to make a very luminous surface, which is not something that happens automatically. You, you need to work the paint. Yeah. And then you can build up a kind of burnished surface. So you've got, you're talking about qualities of sh like sheen and like matte surfaces yeah. and then things that are slightly burnished because I used to use a scalpel mm. to remove the line and adjust the place of the line and inevitably it would slightly burnish the paint. It was lead white. So the pigment was lead and then I was using this metal blade to remove uh, line and the act of removing it would make the paint, it would burnish the paint because yeah. it is metal. It's quite a dangerous paint really, isn't it? It is very dangerous, yeah. <laughs> you have to be careful. Uh, have you, do you still use lead white? Or I haven't used lead white for a long time because I've got to this point where the archaeologists, the, the projects change and I went to different places and I related to, I was working in different landscapes and these new places were so rich with colour oh. and a range of colour uh, that it re they really compelled me. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so it's place really that led you into colour. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking that that would, the probably the colours that you're going to get led into are the earth colours, are they? Or would would that? Be well, right there were some sites. Okay, there's a project I worked on. It's called Thames Gateway Project. So basically, it was all these 
archaeological sites along the estuary. Mm. It was part of a, a government scheme to redevelop these neglected parts outside London uh, East along mm. the estuary, south and north, so Essex and Kent. And uh, I work with Oxford Archaeology, they're a commercial archaeological unit. Uh, and some of the sites are just amazing. I mean, one uh, site was on the A2 outside Gravesend where they removed, must have been a mile strip yeah. of topsoil because they were shifting the road, the oh. A2, slightly moving it. But the archaeologists were all there when they took taking the topsoil off to do their work before it became motorway. The soils and the clays and the, and the, and the kind of colour of the place was really extraordinary. The nudge was coming from places rather than... I mean, other artists always used to say, no, you know, well, you should try using other colour. And I was aware of all this. Uh, but really, the, what actually made me take it really seriously was this experience of looking at colour in the land or the colour of the land. While well, you were there with the archaeologists, were they, they were presumably finding things and... Did that yeah. have an impact? I think artefacts, I mean, there's some artefacts, yeah, mm. but they're not, for me, as interesting as the actual process oh, right. of excavation. Yeah. That's the thing that, as an artist, I can really relate to. And the relationship mm. between, uh, you know, temporality and the material landscape, to me, that's more interesting than a bit of a pot or what, <clears throat> you know, what can be found here. We don't have temples and stuff. Yeah. We have bits of pots and yeah. we have pits and ditches and stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, there were some burials and there were human remains, but they're interesting, but not as interesting for me as, the, as witnessing the excavation process. Yeah. And there's that temporal aspect, which you're talking about bringing into your painting as well. So It's been there already. The idea of trying to slow things down, so understanding painting as something that can be fast, something that can be slow, uh, and then realising that within archaeology there's whole systems of thinking about periods, passages of time, mm. you know, stratigraphy, the way uh, you know time can be understood as an axis of a horizontal and a vertical line. Yes. And all these sorts of things that exist in archaeology were a really an eye-opener for me because there were all sorts of questions I had about painting, but they didn't exist in painting in the same way as they do in archaeology. No. So, and also working flat on the ground. and I mean, using the grid as they... When I used to draw, there'd be a big frame with yeah. a string grid on it. Yeah. Um, it yeah. just gives you a different way of looking. Yeah. An understanding. Yeah, well, I think you know, archaeological drawing is it's one of the most interesting forms of drawing because it's seen as it's, it's more important than a photographic document of a place because it's an interpretation. It's not just data. And also, you don't need to, from an artistic point of view, you don't need to understand exactly what all the conventions are of, draw, of the drawing. But there's a beauty about it. When you see an excavated trench it's like looking into the body of the land you're seeing it's a, you're looking into the interior of uh, the landscape or a place that's something that connected for me the idea of the body the body of the viewer of your view of your painting the person standing in the landscape looking into the excavation the body of the landscape I wanted my painting also to have a physical body because I wanted the viewer to respond to my work with their physical body, not just with their eyes. One of my strategies to try to approach them in that way was to make paintings which had interior spaces, which you can you, you understand not just on a visual level, but on a physical level. Yeah. And that came from looking at and it excavations. Al it also makes the viewer walk round rather than just take a single viewpoint. Yeah, that's very important. I mean, one of the things I learned about movement in the landscape is that when you're moving, it seems like all your senses are, they're all alert. You're fully yes. alert. 
You're a bit like a compass, aren't you? You're fully alert. Uh, you know, everything's kind of like in balance and you, you understand information about where you are with your bones, with your muscles, with your eyes, with your ears. Everything informs you. If you're static, standing in front of a painting in the Royal Academy, trying to understand what the thing is, then that's a very difficult situation. That seems to be almost unnatural. The idea of moving around something created the possibility that your senses were all alert. It wasn't just a visual experience. Yes. So you understand the painting with your whole body, not just with one part of it. And the scale as well. You have quite a range of scales. Well, I use scale as a way to make the viewer move mm. from one side to the other side. Mm. Uh, that's, for me, the, the purpose of large scale. It's not to say, oh, here, look how good I am. I can make a huge painting. It's more, it's more about, oh, look, this is something you can walk in front of. You can go to one edge and you can walk back and go to the other. You can explore it. Yeah. And in that way, you're in motion. And some of them you've opened up, the spine paint, paintings, you know, where you're looking into the middle. Yeah, some uh, of them, they are like a conventional... If you imagine a conventional painting, you take the stretcher away and you turn it 90 degrees. So it points out the wall, it points at you. So the interior of the painting, which would have been behind the front surface, is now the subject of the painting. So mm. the actual interior is the painting rather than the conventional flat front surface. So I think about painting as all the physical elements that are the painting, in other words, the woodwork, the canvas, the paint, uh, the fabric, anything that's, it, that's part of the painting, to me, are equally important as part of the painting. Yes. There's no hierarchy. It's interesting to see that you're still using all those elements but you've turned them all on their head. Yeah, really. because I, I'm interested in painting. I'm not trying to turn it into something else. Uh, the whole tradition of it fascinates me. I mean, I am a painter. I associate that with my ambition. You know, I'm not trying to turn it into something else. But what I want to do is try to give it a bit of, as much as a possibility of moving forward. And that means it, it's got to re be reinvented in some way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've done that. Um, in, so, in so many different ways, really. Because um, even when you do use stretchers, they're not like your normal stretcher. Yeah. Uh, those are circles or off yeah. circles, but they're coming out from the wall, so yeah. you're seeing the edges rather yeah. than the well, that, fronts. That particular one you're pointing at, <laughs> uh, I used to make these, I call them pit paintings. All right. Because they remind me of like pits, archaeological pits, circular full shape with a spatial depth and sometimes with little steps, little increments mm. where in archaeology, you know, you remove material from one side and you might make a little step and then you start moving more material so you create this kind of form that goes into the ground that always fascinated me. So I've taken that and put it up again on the wall, that idea of those forms. Mm. And with these particular ones, I've managed to make things that are a full circle that comes out of the wall. So I was thinking about archaeology. Has that always been important to you? Or was that just through working with these archaeologists in Oxfordshire? It's always been interesting. I mean, like yeah. anyone, you know, I'm interested in history. I mean, interested in literature on that sort of level. And archaeology was something that was interesting, but actually became something really important once I do these projects. Yeah. But, and yeah. now, mm. you know, I've worked with a certain uh, professor at Oxford, uh, the Institute of Archaeological, Gary Locke, who's uh, one of the leading figures in uh, Iron Age hill forts in this country. I've worked with him for over 25 years. And he invites yeah. me on site every year and I go. Really important because it's an opportunity to work outside, opportunity yeah. to be really direct, uh, when you work outside, you haven't got endless time to contemplate. You've got to do it. You've got to act. That's yeah. all really important. And then the sights and the ideas and the thinking and the conversations are really amazing. Uh, they're different from the art world. But what's really exciting is the experience of sitting at the end of the day, maybe all the diggers have gone home, it's quiet, and they've just 
you know, excavating a pit. And then for me, I mean, this is my way of understanding it. It's, it's understanding of time on an emotive level, which is to sort of consider the last time that this pit was exposed to daylight was in prehistory. Yes. <clears throat> Someone was there who was very much like the person who was there that day digging. Same activities, same place. It's emotive in a sense that it's very powerful and it gives you a sense of place and your involvement in it. Is it right that I saw that you went to school in Athens? I did, yeah. Do you, I was just wondering if you thought that had any effect. There's no doubt it had an effect. <laughs> uh, I was at a really important time, I was 15. Yeah. So I left Britain and I went to school in Athens and it was absolutely the right time. My eyes were just opening to the world around me. Yeah. And, of course, everything was... Uh, it made me realise that, you know, things can work in different ways and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. And then I was surrounded by the sense of Athens as not just modern city, but also something ancient and fascinating. Absolutely. And every day on the bus to school, I used to go underneath the Acropolis, so I'd see the Parthenon twice a day. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's in there. That's in yeah. there. That's in these paintings, isn't it? That uh, that sense of excavation and living in, you know, a time that stretches so far back. Yeah. Um, but also recognizing that it's not something distant. It's actually you find it in the in, in your present if you're able to understand it in that way. You know, being in a place is not the end of the story of that place. You're just another element yes. in its continuity of use. That you know it humbles you a little bit, but it also makes you gives you a strong relationship to a place. Yeah. It kind of puts you in your place as well because you know that more's going to come yeah. after you've been. Yeah, exactly. It's so your part yeah. of a story. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then colour to get back to colour. What happened? I'm trying to think clearly about that. Okay, so I was making these white paintings. I went to certain sites. I told the one on the A2 this amazing uh, blue clay. I remember the earth movers, contractors had like, <coughs> they cut off the side of a hill wow. to allow the motorway to pass in another way and revealed this blue clay, which when it was wet, it was just the most extraordinary colour. Hmm. And you wouldn't expect it, but it's ancient, millions and millions of years old. I don't know much geology very well, but yeah. really amazing blue. And then another place was called Woolwich Teardrop. It's a site in Woolwich. And this was a part of the city that had been in use constantly since Iron Age. So over 2,000 years of right. building and settlements and you know, becoming a city. The Romans did stuff there. Uh, there was a, a very important kiln that provided ceramics and everyday wear for London in medieval time that was there. This place was just like everything. And inevitably, with it, all this richness came this amazing richness of material in the ground as they excavated. Mm. So that's what really pushed me. God, I've got to actually start dealing with stronger colour. I've got to find a way in. Did you use colour from the landscape or did you um, go to paint to provide the colour? Uh, well, I didn't use colour from the landscape because it isn't colour, it's just it's dirt or sand. You can't, that's not pigment. No, no. I mean, it seems to get there's all this stuff going on at the moment with people making their own pigments. But, yeah. I mean, I'm not cynical, but actually if you go to Cornelison, who provide pigments, it's made in exactly the same way. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, they're, they're fantastic uh, you know, materials you can get from there. Of course, you can make your own pigment, but actually it's already made in that same way. Yeah, I so, didn't. I didn't know whether you wanted a direct relationship with that. Whether you might use that. Uh, no, it was the colour. No, the colour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, what I tried to do was, I tried to continue to make oil painting in the way that had been, mm. but changing the colour. So I attempted to make, say, a cadmium red painting rather than a white, lead white painting, and it didn't work. It was dark disaster. Oh. It was an absolute disaster. I had to. I recognised all the kind of uh, the way of handling the materials, like the ground mm. and everything that had gone into making these white paintings, did not apply to making a red painting. 
they're different things. Yeah. They're different things. And it made me start thinking about colour as material rather than something that is basically all the same thing but different versions of it, if you see what I mean. Yes, yeah. And, yeah. and probably the effect that it has when you combine it with something else. So it's not just surface, it's material goes deeper than that, doesn't it? Well, it's recognising that if you want to make something, for instance, a brown paint, you use burnt umber. Okay, that is an earth. It's, there's a softness to it, right? If you want to make like this yellow painting here, it has a hardness that's cadmium yellow. That's metal. Mm. I mean, we don't look at it and think that's metal, but actually, on some level, you understand it's 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 hard, it's not soft. Right? I mean, I'm making other things. Oh, there's a big painting up there. It's really really soft. But mm. It's all earth colours, uh, and as a result, you feel it, or I do. So when I think about colour. I think about it as a material, what's it made of, because that's part of my sense of what the work is if, if I use that colour. So I don't think of colour as something that's used to depict an object, because I'm not making image-based paintings. No. So I'm trying not to think of it in terms of any of those sets of conventions about colour that exist, that are designed for image-based paintings. I'm trying to think of it as a material which is part of a painting along with the wood, the canvas, sometimes I've got metal structures in my painting or, or other things, as an element of those range of materials that is the whole painting. As a result, you can have a painting that has that feels hard or a painting that feels soft. These can be characteristics of a painting rather than lifelike or not lifelike. Yeah. With these paintings, you're using raw pigment and um, making the paint yourself. Do you well, make the medium. Yeah. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, that's very important, actually, because when I was going from uh, oil painting and then tried to make, like, coloured oil painting or more work with different range of colours, what really was interesting was seeing colour in the ground and or buying the pigments and seeing them in their raw state, they were the, at their, their absolute best. Yes. And trying to keep as close to the pigment at its finest quality, you know, when it's really, you're aware of it as a material. Because so, they, they grind them to different finenesses for different yeah. uh, pigments because of the particle size, like don't cadmiums yeah. are all really fine. Whereas earth, uh, lots of like Mars colours, which is iron oxide, Mm. is really granular you can feel it it's rough it's it's rust uh, so what I tried to do was I wanted to try to get the pigment into the canvas not onto it I wasn't making oil paintings I was questioning all the conventions of oil paintings I wanted to find a way to unify the canvas with the colour so what I did was uh, I used to this is some advice I got given by uh, conservator at Tate is you should wash your canvas before you begin your priming process Aye. because the starch that they put in it to weave it is the, is the very thing that destroys it you should they do it in the fashion industry we don't do it in the art world because we don't know actually that when you buy stuff you should wash it we've lost all these skills and knowledges but anyway this guy at Tate said you should wash your canvases and then you prime that way you have the very best out of your material so I used to get all these rolls of canvas, I would wash them, and so, the size that the manufacturer put in would leak out. And it's mm. really dark yellow, it's like urine leaking out. Oh, really? Uh, but then when it dried, you'd be left with soft cotton, really mm. soft, and the fibres would be open. Yeah. Which meant that when I laid these cloths out on my floor and put my paint in, which was distemper, mm. so that's the powder pigment mixed with rabbit skin glue. Yeah. And when it's really hot, I get a sponge or a brush and I just start to apply it to the canvas. And if you have a little bit of water, still it in the canvas, it pulls it into the canvas and it's caught in the fibres. So mm. it's in the, the material, it's, it's in the canvas. It's almost like a dye thing, is it? No, because dyeing is chemical. All right. That's a chemical yeah. process. I was thinking this of is... it being within the, rather than on the surface. You know, it sort no, of absorbs it. 
it absorbs it. That's what I tried to do. I tried to get the pigments in. So, for instance, with the Mars colours, I used to do these experiments, or I've tried to do something, and then all the pigment would fall off as dust, because mm. Mars colours are they're more granular, and you need stronger size, more rabbit skin glue to hold it all together. Oh, right. If it's a little yeah. bit weak, it mm. just returns to. It wants to come out because they're big bits. They're big, relatively speaking. Yeah. A little bit of cotton fibre is not going to hold it in. It'll fall out. Whereas cadmium's really fine. They tend to stay in more. So, <clears throat> to me, it's that knowledge of how to use colour as a material. So, if we look at your the red painting over there, yeah. Um, are, are there different reds? I can see different reds, but yeah. I'm wondering, are there different pigments that you're using there? Uh, I think probably in that one I use, one of my favourite colours is cadmium red deep. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, I use that a lot because cadmium red is very bright, mm. and I actually like to, the colour knocked back a bit. So cadmium red deep, absolutely beautiful colour. So in that painting, I think there's some of that, that's not cadmium red. Cadmium red is much brighter. And the part underneath, semi-obscured, is uh, more orange, so I'd probably put some cadmium yellow in it. All right. I yeah. might have had cadmium red and cadmium yellow, and the top area, cadmium red deep. But when I make the paintings, I'm not designing, I'm not designing where one bit goes in relation to another. At the beginning, I just think of generating material. Yes, because you're right. not... Um... You're not working on the canvases there, you're just working on it's horizontal. Raw, raw canvas. But off with this yeah. particular one, uh, I made that in Italy. I would take canvas out to this riverbed where I would mark the canvas and cut these kind of puncture marks outside and I'll just end up with that rolls or bits of bits of material which I'd take back to the studio and then at a certain point they would start to the logic would appear about relating one to another, sewing it with the machine. And then building, constructing the painting from these elements that would mm. be in the studio. Yeah. But they'd been generated in the landscape. Yes. Yeah. And then they start to come together again in the studio. I mean, a bit like this on the desk here. All right. So they have been generated, I think, probably initially from, if I work outside, sometimes I make like a, a large sheet and then I can fold it. And if it's been cut and there are holes in it, I can fold it, I draw through. And it kind of, I can generate more and more of these sorts of surfaces from an initial kind of like template. Yeah, so you, so all the, the, the surface and the texture comes directly from the landscape. Yeah. And then when you actually um, paint it, do you paint it in the studio or do you do no, that? No, I take the colour canvas out with me. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So, and then I'll do all sorts of things like uh, the process of softening the canvas to make it you're more aware of its materiality. I try and take, do that. If I have the studio, it's fine, I can do it in the studio. But mm. if I'm working outside, I have to find like water supply. Yeah. So I end up going, you know, looking on satellite imagery, find local rivers and a place where I can get to the river, uh, get access to the water to soften the canvas by putting in water. But mm. also, importantly, away from people. Uh, because trying to explain what you're doing while you're trying to do it can be really frustrating. Cows, I don't mind. But people sometimes can be a problem. Cows can be quite inquisitive too. Cows can be they? very inquisitive. They like standing on canvas. <laughs> they would. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see the colours. In uh, we don't have any lights on in the studio, but um, the colour the colour of the canvas is really singing out from the walls, isn't it? Um, it's got direct lights. That's good. And yeah. then the one next to it, which is in progress. Mm. That's chromium oxide. It's oh. actually one of my favourite pigments. It's just a fantastic green against a metal-based pigment. I don't know if it's synthetic. And then blue, this problem, <laughs> problem colour, getting the right blue. Mm. Which blues do you use? If I had the mind, I'd just use cobalt. Yeah. It's ridiculously expensive. So I didn't use uh, something called... I think Oriental Blue, which is cheap, mm. and I made some work with it, which now I cringe a bit because I'm not sure about it, the colour. Mm. So when I get them back, I often rework the colour. So I put them outside. I can show you. 
this is something that's oriental blue. Oh, yeah. Right. This is part of a bigger painting. What two big things I then take that side and you can see its intensity. It's a yeah. too much for me. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. The sun will affect it, will it? Quite a bit. It's not in the winter. Ah, right. Yeah. So it's quite soften it a bit. Try and affect the colour by leaving it outside. So you might put it back in water, might you? It's been, under, it's been rained on a lot. Yeah. And actually when it was snow, I left it out in the snow. For some reason, find that particular blue a little bit more successful. Mm. I don't know what, what it is, but it must be just pure aesthetics that some things just don't make it for some reason. I don't really know why. But what about the blue over there? That looks more of a Prussian blue. No, it isn't. No. Probably this oriental blue with black in it. Oh, right, yeah. And then washed a lot so it's really knocked back. Yeah. So you do blend colours together if you want, if you, if yeah. you need to. Yeah. I mean, what I try to do is not overcomplicate and not get too drawn into real subtle aesthetic decisions. I like to make a really strong decision. Mm. And then work with it. Yeah, and I mean, there's uh, you've got that rawness to your work, which is very powerful. I think that goes with that ma the materiality that you've been talking about. So, okay. does a colour wheel have any use to you? I was just thinking about what we're taught in art colleges, you know. And no, I think I'm trying to learn actually from looking at bags of pigment. Mm. Uh, when I go and buy my pigment. I mean, I do have some that are important to me because they have a, the colour has a kind of real sense of weight. I suppose I like colour with a bit of weight. Mm. I mean, part of the idea of using yellow is it doesn't necessarily seem to have weight, but I'm trying to find a way of really working with yellow. So in that particular painting, there are different yellows mm. yeah, that make up the whole painting, which is, you couldn't really call it monochrome. Technically, you couldn't, because there are more than one. But they yeah. are all yellows. Yeah, but they're all yellows. Yes. <laughs> what kind? Of, what other yellows have you got in the pot from Cadmium well, Yellow? Well, there's Cadmium Yellow Middle, uh, ah. which is it's quite quickly the yellow pigment starts looking like orange, but yes. not the orange I like. So I don't know. There's always this kind of thing of uh, knowing that you need some sort. Of, there's lemon yellow in it as well, which is a really challenging, really amazing colour because there's something about it that's really difficult to deal with because I, I don't know what it is. It's not synesthesia. It's kind of the colour, I can feel it in my teeth. Oh, really? <laughs> Certain yellows, actually, when I look at them, there's a sort of a response from my teeth for some reason. I, I do know what you mean. Like your teeth, It's a bit like your hair standing on end, probably. It's something. It Gritty. does something. Uh, there's other colours that really don't do that, but so you can understand it in another way. It's a different experience. One I really like is Caput Morton. I mean, it's a Mars, basically. It's iron. Yes. But it appears brown and with a sense of purple dependent on the light. Yes, That's it's an amazing colour. I have just went to do a residency at Padre in Barrera in Portugal, and there they've got Caput Mortum in the landscape. It's a byproduct of oh, yeah. the... Sulfuric yeah. acid industry. Is, it, is that where it comes from? Uh, well, that particular one. Like. Yeah. yeah. I think you can get it from uh, naturally from hematite as well. Oh, but okay. It, yeah, this one is from sulfuric acid, but the whole right. landscape is that colour of purpley brown, magenta colour. Yeah. It should be iron oxide. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's got a lot of iron in it. Yeah. It's iron. yeah. That gives it its redness. Well, the interesting thing I was, you know, yesterday I was thinking about why is it the colouring landscape somehow, uh, you know, really sort of pushed me to think about colour more. It's because I think, uh, because it's not depicting anything, it's just itself. Yes, yeah. And then I'm thinking, well, that's what I want to try to, that's how I would like it to operate in the paintings. That's I don't want it to be symbolic or any of these things about meaning attached to colour, which actually I find quite irritating sometimes. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about that. I just find it annoying because I just don't think it's got anything to do with the material. 
it's just on, someone's you know place these meanings on color and well, also the other thing just <laughs> to talk about things that are annoying is kind of like the design world or the sort of interior design world the kind of names that they give colors it's just yes. so annoying it's nothing to do with what it actually is no, there's a kind of romanticism behind oh, it, isn't there? Yeah, I can't bear it when people go on about baby blue or whatever they happen to be going on about. <laughs> you know, they talk about the pigment, not some yeah. silly name for it. So you, you're perhaps not into Pantone having a colour of the year then? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> no, I like to actually recognise what the thing is and not to have it more obscured by more ridiculous ideas. It sounds like you're closer to being a scientist. Than an, than an artist, you know, it's... Well, no, it, the artists are really pragmatic, you know, we, we deal with actual practicality of making things. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all about that. People attach scholarly knows how many things to it, but, I mean, if people talk about, for instance, with my uh, earlier paintings, the white paintings, it, conversations went very quickly towards this thing called spirituality. Ah. Uh, right? Hmm. Uh, which I've really started thinking about, well, what does that really mean? And I think actually the only reason why the conversation has gone in that direction is it's a response to the luminous white painting. It's a response to material. Mm. It's not something that's come out of the immaterial. It's been generated by the material. And that sensation that you're getting from a painting you call spiritual, which is almost like a denial of what's just happened. It's a fascinating area, really, um, and I wonder how much it's to do with the light, the light in the in the colour, um, not the colour itself so much. The light on it. Yes. Yeah. If it's reflective, that's mm. the other thing with these. Uh, the, cut, the way I work colour now is it's not reflective. There's no oil in it. No. So it goes in. It's matte. Matte. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's quite different because it absorbs light. So it, you know, it gives. Paint the, the work has a kind of sense of density about it. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it that kind of draws you in, or it draws me in. Well, hopefully, mm. I mean, if you're doing oil painting, oil painting tradition, everything's about often it's about convincing people that what they see is real or something that it actually isn't. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's um, a lot of illusion. Yeah, I'm not illusion. prepared to go along with that half the time. <laughs> You know, when I go and look, I don't know, I go to Italy a lot, and I go and look at uh, paintings in churches, of course, it's fantastic. But I like things like the fact they're in darkness, or there's a mm. little bit of reflection from a window on the surface of the painting that picks up the, 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 the cloth. I yeah. prefer that than the fact it's a represent, representation of the Holy Family. But the way it's presented and the scale and all these things are just amazing. And you're, bit, you're picking up on the materiality of yeah. the, uh, of it, yeah. the yeah. painting and its situation yeah. with the light. They're still phenomenal. On that level, they're phenomenal. The way they get them on the wall and all this kind of stuff. It's all really interesting. Their physical is always a primary concern. Uh, physical is the reality that I see, mm. more than the representation of something that's not physical. Yeah, yeah. I know it's an invention, because I'm an artist and I'm a painter, I know. Uh, enough about that to realise the artist invented it. So maybe tell me about a recent project that you've been working on. Well, I was very lucky. It was not really a project. I mean, this is uh, just a show. Uh, I do a lot of stuff outside the UK at the moment in Europe. Uh, it seems to be quite healthy. Yeah. And I was in a show in Spain in uh, this monastery. Oh, which yeah. is something to do with a gallery I have in Spain. And it was with this amazing building, uh, which is, I think it's like early medieval, built by monks. Uh, mm. And it's all kind of like sandstone, which has got a lot of iron in it. So it's amazing red. And I showed two works, which were also the same kind of iron oxide colour. It's almost... The, I put them on the wall, it's almost as if they became camouflaged in this place. Okay. So you, in the darkness, you come across them. So that was really, to me, something that I found really satisfying because it was really suppressing the visual side of the work. 
and then you would come across it, you'd see it. Is it quite an interesting experience? It's kind of like the opposite of the white gallery where, you know, paintings appear like magic hanging on the wall and you don't see how they're there. It's all, it's all you know, tricks. And often the imagery is kind of like, it's about convincing you something. Uh, you know, it's an illusion. And this is the real opposite. To find a painting, you have to start really look, going around exploring. Testing people's perception. Yeah, testing their perception, but also relating painting to an environment, to architecture. And then other people in the show were an artist called Susanna Solana, who's a Spanish sculptor. Oh, yeah. She's mm. really amazing. Mm. And then uh, there was a Zubaran painting also. Oh. So there were only three artists, and one was Zubaran. And that was amazing. <laughs> because I spent loads of time looking at this painting. Yeah. Handling it and hanging it is really amazing. It was really interesting art-wise as well to re realise that some of the conventions that we use actually, it seems like they've gone a bit far. Mm. You know, things have become too visual and it's too common. And you know, we're so sophisticated in terms of understanding visual material that we just walk past it. Yeah. And if we start to rethink what painting can do, uh, it seems to me that it might have a, a different kind of life about it. It can, it can be about material. Uh, I think this is something that's quite well understood in Europe, maybe more yeah. than in the UK. It's that encounter with the material, the physical. Currently, you know, with all the social media and the internet, so much of painting is seen through another medium isn't it yeah. so you lose that you lose the yeah. qualities of surface and scale yeah. Yeah. well people say things like i mean i get people who approach me interested in my work uh maybe even like gallery people mm -hmm. and say oh you know you know we probably should come and actually see the work and i think what how can you say <laughs> such a thing it is absolutely that's what it's all about it's a it's an experience it's an encounter with something it's not like, you know, or we should probably come see it. We've seen it on Instagram, but, you know, it might be an idea to actually see it. It's crazy. And really, you can't understand the work until you actually no, encounter it, it in the flesh. I don't you? think people who are so visually, so clued into the visual, are always the best people to, to understand what an encounter with a painting means. Because I think the result of this elevation of the visual is a suppression of the other senses. There's no way you can have one thing uh, in a hierarchy and other things equal because it's a hierarchy. So I think our other senses are suppressed. Well, I think being with your paintings is um, it is um, you know a really rich experience, and you can they do uh, get you to spend time with them. The even things like the light and the shade that's involved and the you know, the spaces that you create. I'm looking at that green painting over there with the little slot so you can get right into the centre of it with the shadows. Um, it's, you know, it's quite a different experience to a lot of painting where you're, you're looking at a kind of sealed surface, aren't you? Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the oil painting tradition is that. And also the fact that they're not stretched, they're not taut, gives another physical quality to them, doesn't it? I think a lot of 20th century actually, I mean, I suppose what Cezanne did and what Picasso picked up on was that to reveal the process of how you make the work is the work. So with Cubism, you see how they're made and that's what the painting is about. You go one step back into time to Courbet or Delacroix, that didn't exist. Everything came to a final beautiful surface. Yeah. And all the way that you arrive to it was not of any interest because you were supposed to be convinced by the image. Yes. So this idea of revealing the process is really part of 20th century uh, painting thinking. Mm. So that's nothing new. Are there any artists that are important to you, that have been important to you along Loads. your way? Loads. <laughs> I mean, I look at a lot of sculpture, actually. I, people say to me, oh, you know, really, it's sculpture. And I say, well, no, really, it isn't. It's really painting, but if you know anything about the history of painting, if you go back in European painting before the Renaissance, uh, then you find that 
painting had a real strong connection with uh, you know the physical world with architecture it was part of it it was only with the Renaissance that the image really took over and it sort of beat everything back and, and really became victorious and we are living with an idea of painting which is basically formed in the Renaissance period that's what we think painting is today the idea of the image and the perspective and yeah. the way it's made like on canvas on a stretcher so all the physical aspects are suppressed yeah and then it's framed that's put on the wall that's hanging by magic and it's a window onto something you have to be immediate you have got to be decisive and that's something really important when you're in landscape you have to be decisive yeah you can't scratch yourself go mm, what am i going to do if you do that it's, wind's going to come and it'll just that's blow right. it all away the weather would be the first thing to interrupt exactly <laughs> Yeah, and it's a situated practice, isn't it? So you have to be out yeah. in, that, in that place. I find it healthy, just on lots of levels. Yeah. As a human being, as an artist, for the brain, for the body, it's all good. And those are all the things I want in the work. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much, Simon. It's been fascinating, uh, a real insight into your practice. Uh, Thank you, Ruth. Thanks. Thanks for coming, eh? Thank you. Thanks to Simon for such a fascinating insight into his relationship to colour. I would also like to thank Stuart Bowditch for editing the podcast, Arts Council England for supporting it through a Develop Your Creative Practice grant, and Contemporary British Painting, an artist-led organisation that I'm a member of, for helping to publicise it. Thank you for listening. The Geography of Colour is a monthly podcast with a new painter each month talking about their relationship with colour. Do follow it in your podcast player and share it with your friends. You can follow the Geography of Colour and Simon Callery on Instagram and also Contemporary British Painting at Paint Britain and sign up to their newsletter to receive more information. There are more links in the credits for this podcast.